Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. And it's funny, this industry often ignored, but at the center of so much. This inflation debate just gets more and more interesting. I mean, my biggest issue with the inflation thesis, which I've kind of been pushing a little bit over the past X months, six months, it's a bit of a crowded trade. That's the only thing. And, you know, it's one of those things that everybody kind of makes fun of the Fed and the transitory inflation. Look at commodity prices. You know, isn't it obvious we have inflation? And it is, but you, and you know, the everything's about to open up. Everything looks like we should get inflation. But it does make me think twice. Like, I almost have cognitive dissonance. I mean, they say demographics, technology, it leads to deflation. And then on the other hand, we have, you know, commodity prices going higher and uh, the uh, printing of money, economies opening back up. It's coming back faster than we thought in the U.S. All this stuff. We're getting ready for big inflation. Look at Bitcoin. Look at commodities. So, you know, here we are. Again, this ignored industry, but at the center of so much, you know, at the center of geopolitics in a lot of ways. You know, ESG, when you think of ESG, and mining is right there with oil as kind of like front and center targets of the ESG movement and crowd, and you know, which I actually fully support. I mean, I think it's great. And I, you know what I think is also coming out of the ESG thing? I think a lot of mining companies are actually becoming leaders on the issue because they're kind of being forced to because they're sort of seen as the worst offenders along with the oil sector. I think what they're doing is they're basically overcompensating. And you're going to hear that in the conference call we have coming up, Rio Tinto, one of my favorite topics on this podcast. It's a really interesting company at the end of the day. And here we have Jakob Staussholm, the new CEO. And I kind of wanted to give him the spotlight because like he's got so much going on. I mean, we've been tracking this week after week. And this is his first big conference call, having succeeded Jean-Sebastien Jacques, the previous CEO, on the 1st of January. A little bit of background on him. Jakob Staussholm is a Danish businessman, and he's only been at Rio Tinto for two years. Okay. He earned a degree from the University of Copenhagen. Staussholm joined Rio Tinto in September 2018 as an executive director and chief financial officer. So we're going to hear from him. And uh, I think I'm going to call this episode Rio Tinto's New Tone. So words are one thing, actions are another, as we saw with the previous CEO, right? So that is what we have to look forward to. So I want to give you guys a front row seat on what is happening at Rio Tinto, one of our favorite, right up there with diamonds. <laughs> it's one of our favorite sort of topics, hopefully for, for good or ill. Now, we have a ton going on at the Northern Miner newspaper. We have our giant PDAC mega issue, which goes to press tonight. We've all been sort of working overtime getting that done. It is a lot of work, so do check it out. It's going to be out next week. And... uh yeah, and that is kind of, we've had this great partnership with PDAC over the years, and uh, I think this year is no different. And of course, 
Lest we forget today, ladies and gentlemen, we have the Global Mining Symposium. If you haven't registered, you can do so now. It's instant, which is awesome. Again, I'm really impressed. Every time I look at this landing page for every new Global Mining Symposium, it's improved. I don't know if that's Maladin, our marketing guy, or who's doing it. But every time it looks better and it's easier to, to use. Now you just go to the big red button that says register and you fill out the little form and you get your instant confirmation from Laura. And I just want to say you guys are doing a great job there. So sign up for that. We got a lot of industry leaders as usual. And our keynote speakers are Paul Brink, president and CEO of Franco Nevada. Daniela Dimitrov, partner at Sprott Capital Partners. Catherine Gignac, corporate director at Cameco Corporation, Oceana Gold and Women in Mining. John McCluskey, CEO of Alamos Gold. And Margaret Naughty, who is president of Elephant Capital. And we have several featured speakers, some new, some who we've heard from before, including Andrew Cheadle. And we also have Elizabeth Friel, Louise Pierce from ERM. Hugh Roberts from CHR Metals, and Michael White, president and CEO of IBK Capital. So another trailblazing event, and we have like a couple of dozen presenters here. So thanks again to our gold sponsors, Amex Exploration and Kuya Silver, and also to our silver sponsors, SK Mining, Core Mining, Novo Resources, O3 Mining, Prospector, and Prosper Gold, and our bronze sponsor, Alamos Gold, thank you to everybody and all our presenting sponsors. We really take a lot of pride in this event. Register for that today. And also coming up, we have Derek Cooper from Micromine. And this started out as a sponsored interview, but I kind of extended. Usually these things are about five minutes, our mining minutes, you know. And uh, I kind of put five minutes in the middle just to ask him some questions of how he sees things and the big trends in the industry So that is also coming up. So we're going to put that right away, and then we're going to get to the news, and then we're going to get to metal prices, which continue to obliterate previous highs. And then we're going to get to our new Rio Tinto CEO conference call. So tons to get to here. Thank you once again for joining us. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. Find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube where we also post these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's turn to our Mining 10 Minutes with Derek Cooper. Joining me today is Derek Cooper, who is General Manager for North and South America for Micromine. And you can find them at micromine.com. And they are software providers for geology and mining. And Derek, welcome to our Mining Minute. Yes, thank you. Yeah, great to have you. And now tell us, um, I'm not too familiar with Micromine, so tell me, uh, I'm on the website. It looks like you guys got a lot of tech going on. Uh, what are you guys up to at Micromine? Yeah, so Micromine's been around for, for quite a while, over 20 years. It was uh, founded by a geologist to drive productivity in the initial kind of drilling phases of uh, exploration projects. And over the years, it's it's kind of morphed into something larger. So now we have, you know, kind of a, a full productivity suite of tools that go all the way from geology to mining. Now we even have a um, 
mind control system or fleet management system as, as some people would recognize it as. So the company has evolved over the last few years. So we, we do a, quite a lot more than you would expect from from just reading the name. And so what is your focus? In a sense, give me a real use case of, of what you guys would sort of typically do. If Let's say I was a miner and I was to bring you in. How would you help me? Yeah, so uh, a lot of this stuff is, um, you know, clients come to us. So the typical prospect would be someone who's going to drill. Maybe they just raised some money, like a lot of people did in, you know, uh, 2019 and 2020, and they're going out to drill. Now, uh, if you're drilling one drill hole, maybe you can just, you know, kind of land a rig out there and, and plunk some steel in the ground. But if you have a, a multi-hole campaign, which almost everybody does, uh, you're going to need some technology to help you. And we have some of the, the back-end database stuff to power, power that. We also have a good graphical system. And that, that's really what this software is about. It's about managing your data well so that you don't have to spend time in databases and visualizing it so that you can make decisions faster. So if you can take all the, the fuss and muss out of it, you know, if you think of Excel, Excel's a great tool, but it's not very visual. And then you have to do something with the data and change it and, and look at it in a different way so that you can make a decision. So we have the, the graphical tools that kind of plug into the database. And in, in this case, the database would have geological data in it so that you can visualize it and make decisions about, okay, well, this is what my ore body looks like, or I have an unknown over here. Maybe this is where we want to move a drill rig or something went wrong with this hole and now we want to come at it at a different angle. That's kind of the tools that, that we're talking about here on the, the geology side of things. And likewise, we have the analogous systems on the mining side. So if you're an operating miner, you have the same thing. You have a whole bunch of data. You want to visualize it and you want to make a bunch of decisions that are very, you know, productive and efficient. And this software helps you do that. So if I, let's say, made some, did some drilling, I could put that information into something like an Excel worksheet and then uh, use your software to help make that sort of see a visual representation. Would that be a fair sort of use case? Uh, what I would say is you you absolutely don't want to do that. You want to skip the whole Excel <laughs> phase. And so so that traditionally, you know, a geologist would use something like Excel, um, draw on a piece of paper, um, and then you know they would they would come up with some very preliminary estimates based on that. Nowadays, we've moved well beyond that. So now we're talking about massive databases like there's a lot there's probably like eight or nine different dimensions of of data that you would want to capture in your database and then you would want to be able to visualize that and we do that in in one package and that's how you know geological exploration is is done today um so most most um explorers of uh, a decent size would be using some type of software package um, I mean, you probably could get by with Excel and you can import information from Excel into our software package. However, um, it's more efficient if you used a database that's properly configured from the get-go, right? It's kind of like 
you can pound a nail in with a can opener, but I mean, there's there's a hammer for that job, right? <laughs> right. I, I guess that's why I'm doing the podcast and I'm not a ge- ge- geological explorer. Now tell me, as far as your clients, like, do you do the whole sort of gamut from junior explorers to uh, blue chip sort of mining companies, or is it primarily geared towards explorers? Who best benefits from your service? Yeah, so so some of our products are on the the very initial end, right? So on the database end, that's that's where you you're going to get the the one and and two hole explorer. Um, you know, the the juniors, like the the typical Canadian junior that has raised 4 million dollars that's going to plunk a, a few holes in the ground, they would use our entry level product for, you know, picking good drill hole locations, maybe doing some simple modeling. So that would kind of be the the starting point, the entry level of our uh, use case. And then as they, you know, plunk more holes into the ground, they get a better picture of what the, um, the ore body would look like. Then you start to get into the um, resource estimation, right? You start to get a, a 43-101 done, right? You're moving towards that pre-feasibility, feasibility stage. You need to do some block modeling, right? So then we have some more advanced clients in that stage. Um, and then we actually have mining tools, right? So you can do open pit and underground mining optimization, scheduling the whole gambit with our stuff. So that would have the the majors who are actually, you know, running trucks and production drills and all that kind of stuff. So we do run the gambit from, you know, that two people in an office raising a couple million bucks and getting a, a drill rig out into the ground all the way up to, you know, the the majors that are listed on the TSX. Are you finding that there are, with your clients, are they, do you find that they come from, I don't know, a certain kind of metal that they're looking for, like copper's hot right now? I don't know, are, are they mostly gold people or is it just, again, like anybody that's looking for anything in the ground? Yeah, uh, so, I mean, when you're, when you're first drilling, the database requirements that you have don't really change, whether it's, um, you know, coal, uranium, diamonds, copper, gold. But as you move up the chain and you get into the modeling side of things, you get into the resource estimation, you get into the actual mining side of things, the software you choose does matter because a coal deposit is very much different than, you know, uh, a metallurgical deposit like like gold, right? So um, we do have tools for all of those. But what we're finding right now is the juniors are mostly geared towards gold. There's been a lot of money raised uh, towards gold exploration. And I think that's what's driving the demand in the in the junior side of things. We're seeing a lot in gold. Silver, we're seeing some kind of mid, mid-level advancement in the silver. So the silver projects seem to be a little more advanced, at least the ones that uh, that we're dealing with. And then, of course, the people that are in full production, uh, we have some gold, we have some coal, a lot of coal in Australia, and then we have a lot of the base metals around the world as well. But gold is really powering our growth in, in North America. Interesting. Would, would you call that a, a trend? Like, and, and what are the broader trends you're seeing? Or is it just a little bit of everything right now? Yeah, well, it's kind of crazy right now we're we're seeing that um you know some of the fundraising has slowed down and I'm, I'm sure you've seen that too a lot of the money has been raised over the last you know six 12 months and it's drilling 
that's picked up. So we've got a lot of folks that are out there that have either, you know, got drill rigs in the field or they're just coming back with their assay results or they're trying to get assay results. I've I've heard it takes a couple months to actually get your assays back. That's how busy these labs are right now. So there's a lot of activity going on in the field and I think that's going to lead to a lot of people, you know, coming back to the office in a couple months and and wanting to find out what they have and visualizing these really nice um, ore bodies that they're uh, showcasing. And as you know, if if you're going to show your investors what they funded, one of the best ways to do it is to show them visually in a presentation. And, and that's another use case for, for these tools, right? Now, you guys are doing an event at PDAC uh, coming up here. Could you tell me about that? Yeah. So recently, the the companies kind of decided to give back a little bit to the segment that has really helped us out. And that's the the junior explorers. So we've, we've put on a, an event specifically geared towards that segment. So um, we have a bunch of people talking and what they're going to do is a couple of them are going to speak about, you know, the, the junior exploration environment, uh, what you can do to stand out and differentiate yourself from all the other junior explorers. Uh, and we've got some successful folks like um, Stephen Dean of Artemis Gold. He's got the, the Blackwater project in uh, BC that's rapidly moving through to becoming, um, hopefully, a uh, producing uh, deposit. We've got um, Adrian Day, who's a, a gold fund manager. We got Gwen Preston from the Resource Maven, who does a lot of valuation work uh, with junior companies. And we also have Equity Exploration, who's out there evaluating a lot of properties and helping a lot of properties prove up the resources and reserves they have. And she's going to give some some helpful tips on how you can stay productive and efficient and basically save time and money by using, you know, the appropriate software while you're out there, you know, planning your drilling campaigns. So we're we're hoping that this is going to have a decent draw and that it's actually going to provide a lot of information and value to the the junior exploration market and and perhaps just a lot of interested individuals that are looking at you know, investing in, in junior explorers. Okay, so if I wanted to attend this, would I need to be registered for PDAC or how would I do that? How Should I go to your website? How do I find out where and when this is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll provide you a link after, after we conclude our discussion this morning. But the easiest thing to do is to go to micromind.com, take a look on our events page. You'll see PDAC listed there and then you can you can pick from there. It'll be our speaking event. We've uh, cleverly called it Return of the Juniors. It's kind of a little little pun on uh, Star Wars, but also you know the junior exploration market was was had a rough patch for the last uh, last little bit, and uh, it's really come back with a vengeance. So we're calling it Return of the Juniors, and uh, yeah, it's free to anyone who wants to sign up on our site. Well, I think uh, Robert Friedland and his Revenge of the Miners would, yeah, he, he'd be pretty excited to hear about this and maybe he would just might attend. So I'm on your website. So what day is this? Because there's quite a few events here. Just help me out. Uh, do, you, do you know, is it? Yeah, uh, it's, I believe it's March 9th at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern time. Perfect. Okay, so March 9th, 2 p.m. Eastern, and then just go to micromind.com slash events and you can get all the details there. 
Great. Okay, Derek, is there anything else before we before we go? It was great chatting with you, and we love to get the the story out about Micromine. And uh, yeah, check out our event, and you can also be entered to win a little bit of gold. So <laughs> hope to see you at the event. Well, I may just do that. Okay, so we have, uh, we'd like to thank uh, Derek Cooper, General Manager for North and South America for Micromine. Thank you for joining us on the program, and we hope to see you again. All right. Thank you very much, Adrian. And turning to the website, Rio Tinto hands out biggest dividend ever. Prep you for the conference call coming up here. And it vows to tackle customers' emissions. So this must be the S3 emissions. Let's take a closer look. This is by Cecilia Jamasmi of Mining.com. Rio Tinto has rewarded investors with the biggest dividend in its 148-year history and laid out plans to tackle the vast carbon footprint of its global customers in an effort to leave behind what its new chief executive called a, quote, year of extremes, end quote. The world's second largest miner is handing back $9 billion of cash to shareholders, including a record final dividend of $6.5 billion U.S., The splurge comes as iron ore, Rio Tinto's most important commodity, climbed almost 85% in 2020 to a nine-year high of more than $175 a ton. In his first address since taking over the top post in January, Jakob Stausholm said he would strive to restore trust in the company, shattered after it destroyed a sacred Aboriginal site to make way for an iron ore mine expansion in Western Australia. So we're going to hear about that in the conference call, so I'm going to Stausholm also announced that the group is reversing an earlier stance on Scope 3 emissions, those generated by customers through the use of its products by owning its role in how third parties use the commodities it mines. This is quite something, because Scope 3, you could just imagine the boards of directors really pushing back on Scope 3. How can we be responsible for how our customers use our products? And we're going to be liable But I guess this ESG thing has become so strong, they don't feel like they have much choice on this. Uh, Who knows? Maybe they just want to do well, but it's, I don't know how you control your customers' emissions. That's my only thing, but uh, let's see how this plays out. Maybe they have a way. And I mean, when you get something like Rio Tinto, the second largest miner in the world, taking this kind of action, you know, this could actually make a material difference. In emissions, if we look at just a little bit closer here before we move on, the process of producing steel involves adding coking coal to iron ore to make the alloy and is responsible for up to 9% of global greenhouse emissions. The mining giant vowed in 2020 to spend a billion dollars over five years. The ultimate goal was to have, quote, net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. So they have committed to scope three. And here's Stoussholm again, quote, we are all learning on the journey of climate change. Today, you should just see it as an extension, recognizing that we can actually work together with our partners to reduce the scope three. It is a real shift, but it's also a natural development. You start with your own emissions and then you expand from there. So he's basically justifying, I guess, why they didn't do it earlier and said, this is just part of our natural evolution. So Rio Tinto commits to scope three emissions. Wow, that is a head-turning story. Moving on, now still on the ESG front, southern Ecuador's Quenza City bans large-scale mining, also by Cecilia Jamasmi. Residents of the southern Ecuador city of 
Cuenza have voted in favor of banning future large-scale mining activities in five nearby watershed zones, an area that stretches over 3,100 square kilometers and is home to more than half a million people. The poll results represent a win for Cuenza, the country's third largest city in the province of Azue, which holds several mining assets, including Chinese-owned Junefield's Rio Blanco Gold Project and Canada's INV Metals Loma Larga Gold Silver Copper Project. The city pushed last year for the referendum on whether or not communities could decide the fate of mining projects in the area. Ecuador's highest court handed the community a victory, allowing them to set a date for, to vote. The ruling made clear that locals could only have their say on mining rights not yet granted, not on licensed projects. So this is all new projects. More than 80% of the electorate voted this week in favor of the ban, 80%, which proponents argue reinforces, quote, the rights of nature, end quote, guaranteed by the country's 2008 constitution. The result of the referendum is legally binding, meaning Ecuador's next president will have to implement it. The country is headed towards a presidential runoff in April as the results of this month's election remain disputed. Oh, wow. I wonder if this is going to start happening all over the world after what happened in the U.S. Left-wing indigenous candidate Yaku Perez, an environmental lawyer, won 19.38% of the vote in the February 7th election. That's just 33,000 votes behind his second-place rival, right-wing former banker Guillermo Lasso. You know, it's incredible how close the right and the left are in terms of their support in the population. And Perez, the left-wing candidate, is an opponent of mining near watersheds, and he alleges there was fraud to keep him out of the runoff. He was narrowly displaced by Lasso for second to third place in the middle of the count, now halted. What a disaster. You know, wherever you sit on the spectrum, the undermining of the democratic process in the U.S. last November is the real loser. And... So disputes in Ecuador as they ban new large-scale mining by the city of Cuenza. I mean, if it's by a watershed, I mean, that doesn't sound like an extreme. I mean, an 80% of the people supported that. Maybe they're just saying, don't mine near our watersheds. And I think that's pretty understandable. Endeavor Mining CEO Sebastien de Montessou is our mining person of the year for 2020. And this is by Trish Saywell. So... Congratulations to Sébastien de Montessou. And here we have it. Completing two major acquisitions in one calendar year is a significant achievement by any measure. But to do so in the midst of a pandemic makes it even more remarkable, which is one of the reasons why we have chosen Endeavor Mining CEO Sébastien de Montessou as our mining person of the year for 2020. Last March, just as COVID-19 started turning the world upside down, Endeavor announced the friendly acquisition of Samafo in an all-share deal valued at $716 million, adding two cornerstone mines, Bungu and Mana in Burkina Faso, to its already sizable portfolio of mining operations in West Africa. The deal made Endeavor not only the largest gold producer in Côte d'Ivoire and Burkina Faso, but the largest gold producer in all of West Africa, with more than 1 million ounces of gold production per year. Very intense place from a security perspective. This will be very interesting to see how this plays out. Endeavor followed the transaction with the announcement in November of the friendly acquisition of Taranga Gold in an all-share deal worth $2 billion, which added the Spadola-Masawa complex in Senegal, the Wagninion 
mine in Burkina Faso and two advanced assets, Golden Hill in Burkina Faso and Afima in Cote d'Ivoire. The transaction transformed Endeavor into the largest gold producer in Senegal and now a top 10 senior gold producer with estimated annual production of 1.5 million ounces of gold across six core mines in three countries. Remember, Barrick's at 5 million. So 1.5, you're starting to get somewhere. Agnico, I believe it's 2.1, 2.2 million ounces per year. So that's it's all starting to add up for Endeavor. It also meant Endeavor could meet the investment hurdles of larger funds and institutional investors. And we have a quote here. You don't always decide the timing of, of those things, but we saw it was the right timing and we were able to do it. He said in a telephone interview from France, quote, we now have an amazing portfolio in a very strong position in West Africa and see a lot of organic growth. And so I'm extremely happy with these acquisitions in what has been a very challenging year. Yeah, security, security, security. So you can read the whole story on the northernminer.com. Goes into detail. But yeah, Endeavor Mining CEO Sebastien de Montesu is our mining person of the year for 2020. Nice picture of him smiling there. And diamonds, I've always sort of had a soft spot in my heart for diamond stories because I guess I'm sort of, I'm right where millennial and Gen X meets. And I'm kind of have one foot, I'd say more on the side of being a millennial, especially when it comes to diamonds. It's like, you're going to pay all that money for a rock. Uh, I get it. I get it. And it's love and it's diamond lasts forever. Um, but I do really enjoy seeing the diamond story evolve because, again, I think it's just sort of a, it's an indicator of sorts, the diamond industry and diamond demand. And it sounds like it's coming back. Pent up weddings and stimulus could mean, quote, generational consumer boom for diamonds. And this is by Trish Sewell. And she interviews Paul Zimniski, who's kind of a regular diamond contributor for the Northern Miner. And so we're just going to read a couple of questions here and see what Paul has to say. So there's a question, how would you characterize consumer demand for diamonds last year? And what are your forecasts for 2021 to 2025? Paul Zimniski, I think it's fair to say that material luxury outperformed experiential luxury, given all the travel restrictions and large group gathering restrictions globally last year. As far as diamond jewelry versus other material luxury options, Jewelry was the second best performing category for LVMH in calendar Q4, and they are the largest luxury company in the world. Sounds like Louis Vuitton. Uh, jewelry was the overall best performing category for Richemont, the second largest luxury company in the world. There are other similar data points as well. So in jewelry, you had a pretty good 2020 and the momentum accelerated into year end and the holiday season and seems to be continuing into 2021. So very interesting. I mean, again, diamonds sort of had a generational issue, it seemed, with millennials. And it also had that lab-made diamond story. I mean, again, PDAC two years ago is just all bearishness for diamonds. So looks like people with money are still buying diamonds. That said, I estimate that global diamond jewelry demand was still down 20% or so last year compared to 2019. So still, that is still dramatically lower. And that doesn't even kind of incorporate the lab versus the, I guess, you'd, I don't know if you'd call it organic diamonds or whatever. I am forecasting that we will get back to pre-pandemic levels by 2022 with a return to more normal growth for the industry of low to mid single digit percentages thereafter. Of course, there are a lot of moving parts right now with regards to the vaccine rollout, the global reopening, and subsequent consumer sentiment. 
But if everything lines up, we could actually be setting up for a generational consumer boom. In the coming years, due to pent-up demand combined with all of the stimulus that is working its way through the global financial system right now. So that's the upside. More specific to diamonds right now, the hotel and leisure industry consensus is that wedding demand is crazy strong for the second half of this year. So going to be interesting. My worry is that all of this stimulus could lead to a boom-bust situation in the coming years. So Paul, like many of us, has kind of bigger macro concerns. What do they call it? The crack-up boom? Where everything kind of goes crazy and then goes bust? So it's a great interview. Find it on the northernminer.com. Again, Diamond's always an interesting gauge of overall sentiment of the consumer and even just of generational change. So I think, anyway, those are your news stories. Now let's turn to metal prices and see what's going on over there. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on February 23rd, gold is at $1,808.02. That is $10 higher than last week. So back above $1,800. Silver is at $27.91. That is $0.89 cents higher than last week's quote. Platinum is at $1,248.99. That is $23 lower than last week. And palladium is at $2,383.26 per ounce. That is $9 lower than last week. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.99 per pound. That is $0.17 higher than last week. Aluminum is trading up three cents at 97 cents per pound. Lead is unchanged at 96 cents per pound. Nickel continues to climb higher at $8.84 per pound. That is 40 cents higher than last week. And tin also continues to climb at $13.31 per pound. That is 20 cents higher than last week. And cobalt also continues to climb at $22.23 per pound. That is 89 cents higher than last week's quote. And zinc is at $1.30 per pound. That is two cents higher than last week's quote. So what do we see? Bit of a recovery in gold and silver. Platinum and palladium more or less stay flat with industrial metals continuing to charge higher. Cobalt and tin and copper and nickel all performing very, very well. So the narrative continues. The great reflation continues. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Rio Tinto's conference call, the first by Rio Tinto's new CEO, Jakob Stausholm. And I uh, thought it was pretty interesting, a good barometer on what's going on in the mining industry, particularly at this, basically, I, I think it's fair to call it a, a controversial company, uh, Rio Tinto now. So, and I think Jakob Stausholm is trying to turn the page. I have a couple of segments here. I left a little bit of the CFO and I wanted to get mostly Jacob's uh, commentary. We got a little bit of the CFO in between. I'm going to chime in when we jump to the end of the call where Jacob comes back because basically it's all around the same tone, this sort of general view 
and direction of the company. I took out a bunch of stuff on EBITDA and all the kind of nuts and bolts of the financial issues, but I, I left a little bit in as well. So I hope you enjoy it and I'll see you on the other side. Please let me hand over to Jakob and Peter. Jakob. Good morning and good evening uh, from Perth. I would like to first acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where I'm presenting from today, the Watyuk Nunga people. I would also like to acknowledge and pay my respect to all traditional owners and indigenous people that host Rio Tinto operations around the world. 2020 was for Rio Tinto a year of extremes, a year when each one of us have faced challenges on a personal and professional level. For Rio, not only did we have to learn to live with a global pandemic, but the events at Yukon Gorge was a terrible chapter in Rio Tinto's history. Today, let me reiterate, the rock shelters at Yukon should never have been touched. We should have dealt with the situation better. It was a dark day for Rio Tinto, for all our employees, and for me personally. It rightly caused considerable damage to many of our relationships, but in particular with the Bumru, Guti, Gurama, and Binigura people, PKKP, for whom it was a devastating breach of trust. Earlier this week, I visited Dukan Gorge with the Bumru, Guti, Gurama, PKK elders, and personally expressed my deep regret for the damage we caused. I witnessed firsthand the pain we had inflicted. It was a confronting experience and had a profound impact on me. I will never forget my visit to Dukan Gorge. I will never forget the hospitality of the Bunuguti Gurama elders who hosted me and demonstrated a commitment to rebuild our partnership. The work we have to do at Yukon is beyond remediation at the site. I'm convinced that we must not only remediate the site, but work in partnership with traditional owners on the development of our business for a shared future. It underlined that we must earn the right to become a trusted partner once more for traditional owners, indigenous people, host communities, governments, and other stakeholders. It is going to take time and great effort, but you have my assurance, this remains a key priority for the board and the executive team. Turning to our 2020 operational performance, I want to thank and congratulate all employees on their agility, resilience, and innovation which enabled the business to manage the challenges of COVID-19. I'm very proud of how we adapted to the challenges thrown at us. The way we completely overhauled our fly-in, fly-out roster arrangements to keep our iron ore business in the Pilbara on track is just one example. In general, we were able to continue all our activities in a safe manner. As a result, we performed strongly. 
We continue to prioritize safety. And in 2020, we again achieved a fatality-free year. Nothing is more important than operating safely. And we will remain focused on safety every single shift, every single day. Turning to our financial performance, we achieved underlying EBDA of 23.9 billion and a return on capital employed of 27%. We generated free cash flow of $9.4 billion. This was after paying $7.8 billion in taxes and royalties and investing $6.2 billion in growth and sustaining capex. From this, we returned $6.3 billion to our shareholders. And we did this against an extremely challenging economic backdrop as governments and businesses everywhere adapted to cope with the pandemic. The main driver for Rio Tinto and the mining industry remains China. After some initial weaknesses in the early part of 2020, the Chinese economy has performed strongly, benefiting from targeted stimulus. This underpins strong commodity prices, particularly for iron ore. As a company, we also benefited from our host governments recognizing mining as an essential business and allowing us to continue operating and delivering products to our customers. This meant people remained employed, suppliers had our business, and taxes and royalties continued to be paid. Our balance sheet remains very strong with net debt of less than $1 billion at year end. This enabled us to declare a total dividend of $9 billion, representing a 72% payout ratio. This exceeds our policy and is in line with our practice during the last five years. During 2020, we also made further progress in addressing climate change. Mining and products we produce are vital in the transition to a low-carbon economy, and Rio Tinto will be at the forefront. To underline our commitment, we have today set our first scope three goals. This builds on our existing climate commitments. We made genuine progress across a number of areas in 2020 and have a strong foundation to build on. But as I said earlier, we also need to improve in some areas. I'll set out how in a moment, but let me first hand over to Peter to run through the performance in more detail. Thank you, Jakob. Good morning and good afternoon, everyone. I'm honored to be here as interim CFO. I've worked at Rio for the past 27 years across a number of roles, including group controller, head of health, safety, environment and communities, and head of investor relations. Let me first turn to the market, starting with iron ore. Overall, global steel production fell by 1% in 2020, while China lifted its output to a new record of just over 1 billion tons, we witnessed a 9% decline in the rest of the world. This gave rise to solid growth in China's demand for seaborne iron ore, which was exacerbated by disruption to the scrap market from the pandemic. At the same time, severe weather events constrained supply, although cumulative shipments from the majors actually increased by 2% or 25 million tons. Chinese domestic iron ore supply also expanded by just over 7% to around 290 million tons to meet the record demand. These factors led to a 17% increase in the delivered price of iron ore in 2020. And this has been sustained so far this year. 
While our iron ore business has benefited from robust demand and resilient prices, other commodities have seen more volatility. But we did see a marked recovery in the second half of the year. Demand for primary aluminium declined by about 3% in 2020. COVID-19 severely impacted consumption, although with notable differences in regional recovery rates. This was gradual in the West, while China's was V-shaped, driving up prices in the second half. The copper price fell to a low of 209 US cents per pound in March, again due to COVID-19. The rebound was led once more by recovering Chinese demand, supply tightness, and declining inventories. Prices reached a seven-year high of 361 US cents per pound in December, chased up by net long investor positions of around 2 million tons. Less than 12 months ago, these had been over 1.1 million tons net short. Underlying demand for titanium dioxide pigment fell sharply in the second quarter, leading to a deterioration in feedstock demand by the middle of the year. However, structural factors remain favorable for high-grade titanium dioxide feedstock and zircon supply. Now on to our financial results for 2020. As Jacob already mentioned, we've announced a very resilient set of financials against the backdrop of unprecedented conditions stemming from the pandemic. Starting with revenue. The 3% increase in revenue was mostly driven by price, in particular iron ore. Profitability increased further, lifting return on capital employed to 27% and underlying earnings to $12.4 billion. Net earnings reflect excluded items of $2.7 billion, most notably exchange losses and impairments in aluminium and diamonds. We further strengthened our balance sheet with net debt of $700 million at year end. The board was therefore able to declare total dividends per share for the year of 557 US cents. Let's now take a closer look at underlying EBITDA and cash flow. The biggest driver in 2020 was commodity prices. These boosted EBITDA by $3.4 billion in aggregate, nearly all of which was iron ore. Lower volumes were mainly from a reduction in gold grades at Oyotorgoy and reduced refined copper sales at Kennecott due to smelter maintenance. We also saw lower sales of value-added aluminium and titanium dioxide feedstock, both driven by market conditions. Despite disruptions to operations and markets caused by COVID, our operational performance was strong and we delivered production broadly in line with guidance. Our focus on cost control and productivity improvements continued throughout the year. Lower energy costs increased underlying EBITDA by $500 million, mainly from lower diesel prices and reduced coal prices for two of our Pakal smelters. We also benefited from continued respite on cost inflation for certain raw materials for our aluminium business. However, this was outweighed by other cost pressures, notably fixed cost inefficiencies in our copper business from the lower volumes. Overall, our higher unit cash costs, excluding energy and inflation, reduced underlying EBITDA by $450 million. In addition, we incurred around $300 million of associated 
with tackling COVID-19 across our operations. So, all in all, a stable performance with FDA of $24 billion, up 13% on 2019. In 2020, we further improved our return on invested capital to 27%. Our industry-leading profitability is an ongoing feature of our performance. For 19 of the past 20 years, we've delivered double-digit return on invested capital. Most importantly, we have a business model that turns earnings into cash. Ever since we amended our capital allocation framework back in 2013, we've delivered strong and stable free cash flow, averaging $6.8 billion over the last eight years. And we did it again in 2020, generating $9.4 billion of free cash flow. Let's now take a closer look at our product groups, starting with iron ore. Before talking about our iron ore performance, I would like to echo Jakob's words about the deep regret we feel about the tragic events at Yugang Gorge. We've reassessed all our activities that have the potential to impact heritage sites. We'll continue to review mine plans to ensure protection of sites of exceptional cultural value, and we've increased monitoring of operating activities. We've also integrated heritage management into our mining operations so that our iron ore business now has primary responsibility for communities and social performance. Jakob will come back to this. In 2020, we increased our iron ore shipments by 1% and production by 2%. Improvements to our mine and asset health supported record total material moves, a solid performance considering weather disruptions and strict measures to manage COVID-19. These COVID-19 procedures are now business as usual for us. This translated into an underlying FDA of $18.8 billion, which was 17% higher than 2019. We did experience a rise in unit costs, and I'll unpack that later. Free cash flow of $10.2 billion was up 7% and included a near 70% increase in capital spend. This was mainly related to increased construction activity at Gudadari, our new 43 million ton per year hub, which is due to ramp up in 2022. 2021 is set to be a key year as we tie in approximately 90 million tons of replacement mine capacity at our existing hubs in Robe Valley, West Angeles, and West Turnham Syncline, as well as Gudadari. Our shipment guidance for 2021 takes into account the risks associated with this. Let me now turn to look at our iron ore unit cash costs on slide 13. Since 2015, these have been stable at between $13 and $15 a ton. In 2020, we came in just above that at $15.40. Two factors account for the increment. COVID-19 costs were $0.60 per ton due to controls we put in place to keep our people safe, such as additional cleaning and flight, screening and roster changes. We also experienced a higher monthly volatility in the iron ore price and a sharp appreciation in the Australian dollar at year end. This triggered exchange effects, including losses on US dollars receivables booked in our Australian dollar entities. Importantly, our underlying cost performance was flat year on year. In 2021, we see unit cash costs rise to just over $17 a ton 
at the midpoint of our guidance. The biggest single effect is currency. For many years, we've benefited from a relatively weak Australian dollar, but this is now reversed. We're assuming an exchange rate of 77 cents, which adds about $1.60 or 12% to unit costs. As I just mentioned, 2021 is an important year for the new replacement mines in Goodadari. Commissioning costs with as yet limited production give rise to an extra 50 cents per ton. Additional study costs for the next wave of replacement mines, including Goodadari, Phase 2, and Western Range, along with other resource development costs, add a further 30 cents. And finally, other items, such as underlying inflation and higher fuel, partially offset by efficiencies at 40 cents. While we have not provided specific cost guidance beyond 2021, we will be entering 2022 in much better shape. There will be an impact from our continuing brownfield development, which will include some longer hauls and steeper inclines. But these will be offset by the benefits from increased production capabilities at Goodadari and the other replacement mines, if market demand is there. We can also see further efficiency improvements from automation, including better use of our data. Moving on to aluminium on slide 14, our financials demonstrate that this is the best integrated aluminium business globally. Production was stable despite COVID-related impacts on our operations and also on our markets, which gave rise to lower sales prices and reduced demand for value-added products. Our focus on operational stability and cash flow generation, along with lower input pricing, enabled us to deliver a solid underlying EBITDA, just 6% lower, and $1.9 billion in operating cash flow. The 3% return on capital employed reflects the toughest market for the industry since 2015. Despite this, we actually increased free cash flow by 9% to $900 million and profitability improved substantially in the fourth quarter, which augurs well for a better Rochi in 2021. We continue to take action to address less competitive assets. On that front, we were very pleased to make two recent announcements. Last month, we reached agreement on a new electricity supply from Meridian Energy, which allows us to continue operating the TY point smelter in New Zealand until December 2024. And just this week, we reached an amended power agreement in Iceland that will allow ISAL to continue operating with an improved competitive position. Let's now take a look at our copper and diamonds group on slide 15. 2020 started with weak market conditions, COVID-19 restrictions, and a 5.7 magnitude earthquake in Utah. We also experienced delays in restarting the Kennecott smelter following a planned shutdown and a temporary reduction in grades of both Kennecott and Oyotolgoy. However, a strong recovery in the copper price and fully operational smelter by October, coupled with very tight cost control, led to a 5% increase in EBITDA to $2.2 billion, with margins ramping up to 47%. The $600 million negative free cash flow reflected lower dividends from Escondida and a sustained level of investment of $1.7 billion. This mainly related to the Oyo Tolgoy underground project, where we made significant progress 
ending the year with a definitive estimate for panel zero in line with the ranges we first announced in July 2019. We were also careful not to slow any of our other projects, such as the South Wall pushback at Kennecott. This sets us up well for 2021 as we gradually access higher grades. Jakob will talk more about OTs shortly. And that was Peter Cunningham, who is Interim Chief Financial Officer for Rio Tinto. So now we're going to skip to the end of the call, and we are going to hear uh, Jacob Stausholm wrap up the conference call and really continue what he started saying at the beginning. Thanks, Peter. I think you very effectively demonstrated many of Rio's core strengths. Our foundation is fundamentally strong but there's also room for improvement. Our 2020 safety performance is the strongest in our 150 years history. Safety must remain our first priority. One accident, however minor, is one too many. Our people and our world-class assets continue to deliver strong free cash flow, resilient in almost all market conditions. And when it comes to allocating cash, As Peter said, we are absolutely to maintaining the discipline that you've come to expect from Rio Tinto. These qualities are, in my view, at the core of Rio Tinto's strong performance and must be maintained. In fact, we should build upon our strengths while also addressing the clear opportunities we have to do even better. We will pursue this by focusing on four areas. Firstly, Simply put, Rio Tinto must be the best operator. Our 2020 results demonstrate our operational strengths and improvements, especially with the additional challenges of COVID-19. But we can further sharpen the consistency of our performance. More than anything, this is about leadership and empowerment. Secondly, I firmly believe that the foundation for our commercial success is impeccable ESG credentials. Our failure at Dugan Gorge highlights how much work we have to do. But you have my commitment that we will drive towards uh, drive towards consistently high ESG performance. Thirdly, we must excel in development from identifying opportunities to maturing and develop them in order to build the portfolio for the next decade and beyond. We will do this by using all our capabilities while maintaining an absolute commitment to capital discipline. However, we will only pursue opportunities that create value. We will not chase volume or commodities where there isn't value or the asset don't fit our portfolio. Finally, Beyond performing in those areas, we must step up our external engagement, become a more outward-looking company, fully participating in the societies in which we operate. This is our social license to operate, and it is judged by others, and it is essential for our long-term success. Now, my first task as chief executive was to carefully choose my leadership team I fundamentally believe in teamwork. It will not be me taking all the decisions, and I'm certainly not the one who has all the answers. So setting the team was absolutely crucial. 
Three weeks ago, I announced our new leadership team, a major change with almost everyone new in job. I decided to make these wide changes partly to ensure we had the best possible leader in each position, partly to ensure the best possible team dynamics, and also to make the changes now so that we have a stable team that together can develop on the journey we have in the years to come. As part of the evaluation process, it was particularly highlight for me to learn how strong a leadership bench we have internally. I found exactly what I was looking for, and I stand today in front of you very proud of the new leadership team. This is an experienced and very able team. They know Rio Tinto very well and are all committed to unleashing the company's full potential. I'm truly excited about what we can achieve together. The new executive leadership team will be effective only a few weeks from now, and then the real work starts. Let me offer you a bit insight into the agenda that we, will, that we together will pursue. We have today announced a set of results, excellent financial performance, and an improved operational performance in 2020 compared with 2019. But I believe there's room for improvement, and we will pursue this. To start, we must achieve operational excellence by unlocking real and sustainable improvements at each asset. This will be done by ensuring every single operation achieves the same high standard as our best performing assets. We must empower our people to identify and apply ways of improving performance. We have some of the most talented people in the industry, truly experts in their fields. We must allow them to make the maximum contrib contribution in unlocking excellence at every level of the organization. Finally, the effort will be integrated into the Rio Tinto production system that will capture these improvements, embed them, and sustain them for the long term. Arnold, as the new chief operating officer, is the right person to drive these uh, improvements. He brings deep mining and processing know-how and operational experience gained over 30 years in industry. He has a proven track record of achieving operational excellence through sustainable productivity improvements and cost reductions in a global business. However, this will be about teamwork with the product group chief executives and our head of technical and safety all working together. When I joined Rio Tinto two years ago, one of the attributes that attracted me to the company was a long-standing track record and commitment to how it operated, way beyond the financial performance. While the destruction of Dugan Gorge was understandably, has understandably damaged our standing, I believe that Rio Tinto has sound ESG credentials. However, I see it as a core value, a foundation for our business to have impeccable ESG credentials. We are taking actions to increase the focus on how we work with communities, particularly the traditional owners. A vital step has been to enhance our governance in this space. We are modernizing and improving agreements, eliminating confidentiality clauses, and being fully transparent when traditional owners agree. We also have a critical role to play in transitioning to a more sustainable economic model. Our portfolio of high-quality iron ore, copper, aluminium, and minerals are not easily substituted and are vital for a greener future. 
We exited the coal in 2018, so today we don't extract fossil fuels. Last year, we set clear 2030 CO2 emission targets and set an ambition of being net zero by 2050. Today, we set out our first scope three goals and a commitment to working with our customers and their customers to reduce emissions and decarbonize the production of certain metals. And we will include climate change targets in management incentive plans. And our TCFD aligned climate change report will be put to an advisory vote at our 2022 annual general meetings. These are all significant changes that will drive behavior in our approach to tackling climate change. Turning to our portfolio and how we renew it over time, we must double down on development to create the portfolio for the next decade and the decade beyond. We have time to do so. Our portfolio should not be seen through a quarterly lens, but in terms of decades. Our history has demonstrated an ability to continue to renew our portfolio, and we must pursue this with excellence, daring to take some risks within our tight capital allocation framework. The list of projects are mostly known. There are important decisions to be taken in the next 12 months. We will, as a team, work them as hard as we can, but also commit to make rational choices. We have progressed our major investment projects, including replacement mines in the Pilbara, where we remain on time and on budget to ramp up production at Goodai Diary in early 2022 or a talk or underground, and the Kennecott pushback. At the Yadda project, we have advanced to the feasibility study stage and declared a maiden ore reserve. The study is expected to be complete by the end of this year, at which point we will make a decision. We also continue to adapt our product, project development and execution, sharpening our capabilities. For example, we're doing things differently at Wino with a more agile development pathway. We continue to work with our partners to optimize the Simadu project. We expect to complete the first phase of the technical optimization work of the infrastructure in the first half of 2021. Activity at the mine area has commenced and an update of the social and environmental impact assessment is underway. At Resolution Copper, the final environmental impact statement led by the US Forest Service was published last month. This is an important step, although we are a number, number of years away from being in a position to considering sanctioning a full development. Finally, we continue to strengthen our project pipeline through our sector-leading exploration activity. Oya Tolgoy is an impressive mine. It started producing in 2014 and has already delivered over 1 million tons of copper. When fully ramped up, it will be the world's fourth largest copper mine. The underground expansion is well progressed, and we have overcome various technical and geotechnical challenges. We have identified a clear pathway for the ongoing development of the underground with target date for sustainable production for panel zero of October 2022. Safety and productivity at the mine are consistently at the top end of the entire Rio Tinto portfolio. Oya Tolgoy is Mongolia's largest private sector employer. More than 95% of 
of the 12,000 employees are Mongolian. Oyatolgoy is top three taxpayer in the country and the largest foreign direct investor. Since 2010, over 11 billion has been spent in Mongolia, including salaries, payment to Mongolian suppliers, and almost 3 billion paid to the government. Although construction work has slowed due to the COVID-19 restrictions, we remain on track to make a decision on the undercut in 2021. We also continue to have constructive discussions with the Mongolian government about increasing the benefit of Oyatolgoy for all stakeholders. I'm in regular dialogue with all stakeholders. Bolt Patar has already set his team and they have commenced discussions with the government of Mongolia. I remain convinced that we will be able to find mutually acceptable solutions as the Oyatolgoy development is not only an impressive engineering achievement delivering the needed copper to the world, but it is fundamentally a development for the benefit of the Mongolian people. I'd like to conclude with my fourth area of focus, to truly unleash the full potential, as well as looking at how we can improve what we do internally, we need to be more outward looking and earn and protect our social license. As I said earlier, we must understand our role in society and investing in building meaningful relationships and partnerships, giving back to society and thereby earn trust. It will be others who will judge our social license. Clearly, this must happen by all of us, wherever we are in the world. However, given the significance of Australia to Rio Tinto, I've created the role of Chief Executive of Australia, and Kelly Parker is the ideal person for that role. She's a proven operator with first-hand experience of building relationships with host communities, governments, and other stakeholders. She will lead our effort with stakeholders across Australia working closely with me and other Australian-based EXCO members. So let me summarize. We have again achieved a strong safety and financial performance in 2020. We have strong foundations to build upon and a clear path forward to become best operator, build impeccable ESG credentials and excellent development, and with a clear focus on gaining a strong social license. I'm looking forward to you meeting our new executive leadership team during the year and no later than at the Capital Markets Day in the second half. We now have a full agenda ahead, and I must say, I'm really looking forward to the work to progress the agenda, develop our executive team, and make Rio Tinto even stronger, and over time, see our great company earn back its respect and credibility with all our stakeholders. In other words, Rio Tinto is very well placed, but we can do better inside and outside the mine gate, and we will. Well, I hope you made it this far, because if you did, I think you have a very current view of what's going on in the mining industry. It's a little long, but now you're well updated as to where the conversation is. So 
If you haven't signed up to the Global Mining Symposium, do not forget to do that. NorthernMiner.com slash GMS 2021. Instant registration and free. Thank you once again for joining us on the program. Until next week, take care.